Late-nighters, thank you for joining me tonight. You are listening to Late Night with White, and I'm your host, C.D. White. It is a month of love. You survived your first almost month and a half of 2024, and certainly we are still living in very interesting times. Sadly, war is still looming. Supreme Court is still brooding. Women's rights and self-autonomy are still under attack. But look, you've come to escape. And that's what I'm going to help you do. I hope you have a thick cuppa, a smooth sippa. Whatever it is, it's going to ease you in to slumber. Now, I know people have said, sometimes I listen to your podcast and I can't go to sleep. And for that, I make no apologies because look, you're a lit head. You signed up for this. And if you ponder on your way to sleep, how much joyous is it going to be? But look, today we're looking at essentially what is termed nature versus nurture. The age-old question of, you know, are we born evil in the original sin context? Or does our environment create the evil? And of course, when it comes to children, the question is not a new one for us. I mean... We struggle with this. Lit heads who have read enough literature know that there's a lot of information on the matter of what makes us sometimes these evil, wretched creatures. And I subscribe to the belief that there is no vacuum, that everything has a source, a start, an origin. Your most heinous killer somebody's child like you know um, we all come naked crying and, and vulnerable and so they started that way too and also as someone who's worked at all levels with kids I, we can't ignore that they manifest surprisingly evil behavior and commit evil acts We've come in our recent, more modern understanding to know the kids are not just many adults. And we acknowledge that the teen brain is not the same as the adult brain. In fact, according to the American College of Pediatricians, the teen brain undergoes extensive structural remodeling beginning at approximately 12 years of age and continuing through young adulthood. During adolescence, each lobe of the brain changes in its composition of gray and white matter and its connection with the other lobes and in its hormonal environment. It goes on to say, these changes do not occur simultaneously, but rather each area of the brain undergoes structural modeling on its own timeline, with the prefrontal cortex being one of the last areas to fully mature. 
As each lobe matures, it also develops increased connections with the other areas of the brain, thus allowing for improved communication with better coordination and integration of perceptions, emotions, and actions. College of Pediatricians, laying it on the line for us. So teens and young people do not think or have the ability to think like an adult because their brains are still developing. This idea that the teen brain is fundamentally different from the adult brain is, as I've said, relatively new. In history, just go back 150 years, even less, People of 12 and 13 were marrying, having kids, working full-time, responsible for siblings, you know, raising families, uh, contributing to the society in which they live. Slave children, you know, worked the plantations uh, as young as two. Three and four-year-olds babysat and were caregivers for their white chargelings. So, the idea even of a childhood as a sense of a, a unique time of unstructured break time and exploration is an evolved one compared to, say, you know, 1800s or 1900s when kids were expected to work and do all the things that adults do, just in smaller bodies, sometimes not even in smaller bodies. This idea of a prolonged childhood of school and minimal work and a largely sexless existence is new. Of course, in some areas of the world, there are children who do not experience this Western ideal childhood, especially girls who are missing by the millions. So we still acknowledge that it's an imperfect state. And that we as adults and children and society are still reckoning with what does childhood mean? What should it be? How structured or unstructured should it be? But of course, we've come lit heads to ask the question we always ask for every episode. What does literature tell us about evil children? That's our focus today. And literature is rich with stories. And we're going to start, as we often do, old school. The Bible tells us that children are not only capable of grave sin, but they reap the punishment. A favorite tale, and one that is hard to forget, is the story of Elisha and the youths of the Bible that appears in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23, roughly through 25. I was always intrigued by this story. And my mom and I had just had a discussion about it, that um, these kids called Elisha bald-headed and taunted him, and then these bears come out and kill them? Seems kind of like not proportionate. The punishment not being, you know, an adequate response to the crime. Yet, as I I researched this and studied it, it's ripe with intriguing subtext, not only about God, but about rejection of God and about audacity, the audacity and the hubris of youth. 
So in this story, Elijah, as God's new prophet, is coming to do the Lord's bidding in Bethel. Uh, And of course, we know that Bethel means house of God. So he's coming to set right the house of God. And Elijah is not that much older than the boys calling him names and telling him to go to heaven like Elijah, but in contempt. And of course, if a prophet is being sent to you, you're a cityscape in trouble. So this city is one that needs to be reckoned with and dealt with. And Elisha was on his way to do that. And who does he encounter at the gates or what does he encounter? Kids. Now, my first read, I'm thinking kids, like an eight-year-old maybe like five or six just hanging out they're not working they're not you know being industrious but actually most of the theologians suggest that these weren't kids in the western mindset theologian char uh, chad bird says that these were more than likely young men like i said not much younger than elijah himself Mr. Bird holds master's degrees from Concordia Theological Seminary and Hebrew Union College. So, he knows. And like many of us litheads, he's pondering the story as well. And on its surface, it seems to reflect negatively on God, showing him as cruel and capricious. But like we said, further study sheds light on what really happened and why. The first thing we need to know is that these were not toddlers whom God sick she-bears on, nor innocent eight-year-olds. These were, according to Byrd and other theologians, young men, not only young men, but young men of the priestly class, servant priestly class, calling them Nayah Katon. So, rogues and thugs, who had heard that the prophet was coming, and who were up in arms about it, who were upset that the status quo might possibly change. So, it was these young men who met Elijah and mocked him. Bird calls this moment a small battle in the ongoing war between light and darkness, orthodoxy and idolatry, God's and gods with a small g. He argues that this attack on Elijah is by young men of the priestly servant class, as I said, who didn't like the changes Elisha represented. These were young men with evil intentions who betrayed their status and class by urging the new prophet to go like his predecessor to God and ridicule him as bald-headed, which also suggests some uncleanliness on the part of the prophet. And Elisha does curse them in the name of the Lord, but it is the Lord who sends the bears. Now, I imagine Stephen King Sardak, um, this great hulking, you know, beast, two of them, coming to maul these teens to, you know, young men. But then we consider that there were 42 of them that they had come uh, 
you know, basically unmask to to stand in the way of the prophet, and that they were mauled by two bears. It seems to suggest that it was a willful battle that these young men were ready for the fight. And the mauling is not so much an attack of the bears solely, but also the resistance of the young men. And certainly they got their comeuppance and certainly Elijah was allowed to go ahead and do God's bidding. I also imagine that these boys, as they aged in their communities, bore the marks for the rest of their life, you know, um, the mauling, um, scratches and deep gouges and, you know, just think about the stitching and the horrific wounding that they likely underwent and had to live with. And hopefully, if they turned from their evil ways, had a great story to tell, a redemptive story about being given a chance to see the evil of their ways. But um, I can imagine that for years and years and years, this story was told by the townspeople and by the young men themselves. But let's move forward. So... The Bad Sea is a novel by William March. The book was nominated for the 1955 National Book Award for Fiction. And it tells the story of a mother's realization that her young daughter is a murderer. Its enormous critical and commercial success was largely realized after the author's death, just one month after he published the book. So in the novel, March explores whether evil is innate or a product of the environment. And he seems to suggest that evil is more hereditary, what I call, and what has been called the human stain, more than a product of environment. And most readers would agree to an extent that this idea of an innate and necessarily repressed evil is within us all. In the book, The Murdering Child is a granddaughter of an insane uh, sociopathic murderer. and uh, her mother is not quite aware of this past, so the young girl is not aware of her lineage, but yet there it is. So the girl exhibits behaviors, what we would call antisocial and sociopathic tendencies. She's entitled, killing a classmate for his penmanship award, which she believes she deserved, setting fire to an um, accidentally on point maintenance man who discovers her secret and she's indifferent and manipulative to her suffering mother who's grappling with this idea that this beautiful child there's something wrong with her there's something off there's something cold there's something i guess we could describe it as shark-like just cold-blooded just um blind to its own intentionality, just doing what it's bred to do. What the bad seed perhaps manipulates and drives home is the defects of society that began with children. 
Whether one believes the dysfunction of violence and murder are conditions of our environment or our nature, the fear is the same. An evil child is inexplicable and a powerful evidence that evil takes all forms. Wouldn't it be nice if it's just adults with our certified adult brains who committed evil acts? But children also do evil, heinous things. And when all around this port, this child is undone, she goes on to other unbelieving and unsuspecting adults because her presentation is perfected. She's a child who is hiding what she is and manipulating the adults around her. And then we come a little bit further into the present, 1967's Rosemary's Baby, which goes to the unborn child. In this novel by author Ira Levin, a woman is impregnated with the spawn of Satan himself. So we go from hereditary human stain to the incarnate evil of God's nemesis, Satan. We find out that the husband is struggling actor succumbs to pressure and agrees for his wife to be the mother of this child. The pregnancy is a twin horror presenting the birth of the Antichrist, but also the real psychological fear of a malignant pregnancy. And now with, I think they reported 65,000 unwanted kids due to the end of Roe v. Wade, and these kids being raped and incest creations, we're probably going to have to deal with it culturally, the idea of these unwanted kids, the malignant pregnancies. The novel was, according to um, Wikipedia and others, a best, the, the best-selling horror novel of the 1960s. And remember, it was published three years shy of the end of the decade. It's a cautionary tale to parents who ignore sage advice and pursue success at any cost. And of course, this theme of giving up the firstborn, we've seen it in Grimm, we've seen it in other fairy tales, we've seen it in other cultures, we've seen it in the Bible, right? It's rendered more horrific when Satan and his most monstrous form rapes and impregnates a mother in the novel. It is a reversal of the beautiful experience of Mary, mother of Jesus, who accepts her divine role to bear Christ. In the novel, the young mother is not only raped, her pregnancy is one of terror. Rather than rejoicing with her cousin and family, she is fed horrible concoctions and is losing rather than gaining weight. People are ridiculing her for her hysteria and for her... Uh, disturbing pregnancy but this is kind of like one of those lovecraftian tales where the horror's origins are sinister and malignant surely though just as there are divine children there are evil children and literature is right with divine children and it's ripe with evil children. Just as we have decent adults 
And we have adults who we wonder at the evil that they do. Which, as we know, Shakespeare says, lives on long after the good has been buried. Today, right now, teen pregnancy is down. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, the rate of youth violent crime arrests have been in decline. Quote, the estimated number of youth arrests for violent crime, which includes murder, robbery, and aggravated assault, has declined since the mid-2000s. By 2020, the number of violent crime arrests involving youth reached a new low, 78% below the 1994 peak and half the number 10 years earlier. Now, of course, perhaps there's COVID to think because we had lockdowns and, you know, people just weren't in the streets. And now that COVID has receded, at least officially, according to the Wall Street Journal, post-COVID, there's an uptick in violence from children. Schools across the nation have had their hands full with violence in schools on and off campus. Which only brings to mind the old adage, there's nothing new under the sun. From the youth of Elijah's time to our own difficult brood, here we are, badass kids. One in five high schools reports being bullied, according to federal data from youth.gov. Quote, homicide is a third leading cause of death for young people ages 10 to 24, youth. Each day, approximately 12 young people are victims of homicide, and almost 1,400 are treated in emergency departments for non-fatal assault-related injuries. End quote. It is estimated that this violence has an economic cost as well, $18.2 billion annually, and combined medical and lost productivity costs alone. And we know, sadly, that these crimes hit hardest in low-income and black and brown spaces. So is it nurture or nature? Boys, males, are 18 more likely to be perpetrators as females. And sadly, LGBTQ kids are more likely to experience the violence than their peers. Nature or nurture? Are kids just exhibiting the disease of their communities? Are they devoid of a respectful life because they live in a society that also has that void? Or are they simply being human? In 1954's Lord of the Flies by William Golding, we have a child society ripe with destruction, violence, and upheaval. These are adolescents left to their own devices after being stranded on an island. Golding considered his book a look at how children really would behave if left to their own devices. And in many ways, it mirrors the chaos of the adult world. It is absent of all Christian ethos and pathos and logos of the society from which the children are separated. The boys' island becomes an epic battle against order and civility, 
and chaos and war and debauchery begin to win. When we think about the author Golden and, and Golding, and we know that uh, he was a Navy officer and that he participated in World War II, it's clear that his intent is to explore the center of our being as humans through the lensing of childhood experiences. And his view is quite bleak. And I, it led me to think about Anne Frank, a young girl, cut short by this human stain and her eternal optimism that we're all good at heart having died in a camp full of bodies the juxtaposition of those two attitudes a child's hope and optimism murdered essentially in a death camp nature or nurture and of course the world of literature doesn't present simple answers that's why we read we read for the in-depth practice of critical thinking but it does ask us to be better captains of our ships all of these in essence can be cautionary tales when an officer finally arrives to save the remaining boys in the novel, he is appalled that they have degenerated into these feral little monsters. But what choice is there? Aren't we all beasts? Is it only the facade of civilization that keeps us from ripping each other apart? Which leads us to real-life text. Rittenhouse was 17 when he fired on three men, killing one in 2020. His defense, he acted in self-defense. He is applauded by some and a pariah to others. The truth is in there somewhere. This is a young man who had aspirations to be the best of society an officer of the law. He supported Trump and went to his rallies. He is a product of divorce and an absentee father. Somehow he was given a gun. He is essentially a high school dropout. Like those before him, he is aging out of youth and coming into manhood. Having been acquitted, will he realize his actions, though found innocent, are problematic? Is he the product of nature or nurture? The real question, do we raise our vipers? Do we raise our own agents of chaos and discord? Secondly, and this is just a few days ago, uh, a mother of a school shooter has been found guilty of manslaughter, slaughter, sharing culpability in her son's killing of four students. The father is also facing charges and trial. She is charged or was charged with not securing the weapon and not getting help for her son's mental health. 
She is the first parent in the U.S. to be held responsible for a child carrying out a mass school attack, according to AP News. Her son at the time was 15 at the time of the murders and is now 17, still very young, and he would spend his life in prison. He once texted his mother to say that he saw demons and stated that, quote, his world was dead. He came from a two-parent home, had all the trappings of modern life, and yet here it is. One wonders, if we go back to our beginning text, if those parents of the youth who mocked Elisha were held to account. But honestly, having raised children, I could say that I have been shocked at times. And I've asked, who, who is this? What child is this? I've been disappointed. And then I have been a child and I've let my parents down. And I have made mistakes. Kids certainly need room for forgiveness and grace because the science is clear that kids are just that, that they are growing and developing into adulthood. And yet, with that growth, some contain malice, hatred, and a desire that no decent adult can expect or comprehend from any person, especially in one so young. It's a human animal so toxic that it sires its demise as golden thought? Or is it a blip of biology as March imagined? Is it bad parenting? Or a society that preaches hate in young minds? Teachers are definitely in the trenches with kids. As educators, we do more than deliver lessons. And I tell you, Bad, disobedient, and disrespectful kids spoil the class. Just one constant disruptor can dial down the learning that occurs and impede other students. Parents often co-sign their child's worst behavior and make excuses. It's difficult to witness kids come and go right into the school-to-prison pipeline into sex and drugs, into the abyss that their young minds cannot fathom, yea, even the adult mind. Kids with perfect scores and $400 shoes, two incomes in a three-story house, but so empty. Nature or nurture? And of course, I've shared and heard many parents' sorrow cried tears with them for the pain they cannot hold and do not understand when a golden child becomes tarnished. When they fight them and steal and curse them. When they're doing things that the parent cannot understand, hurting themselves and stealing joy. It's difficult when it's a child. Somehow a child who is wicked tears at us at a sacred place. It makes profane the sacrament of the adult responsibility to the next generation. It renders us helpless in the face of evil. 
I'll leave you with a word from Proverbs 29. A child left undisciplined disgraces its mother. Discipline your children and they will give you peace, the text says. They will bring you the delights you desire. The corollary is, if we're not guiding our kids, if they do become BAKs, then society has failed. Society has let go, in a sense, of these children. Give me your thoughts. Send me an email. Let me know what you think about nature versus nurture and just badass kids. Nothing new under the sun. We see these memes about Gen X and Millennials and Gen Z and the forgotten generation, the unseen generation. The conflicts between generations are eternal. I'm sure that Adam and Eve were like, oh, these kids. And Seth and Cain's kids were like, oh, our parents. I just wanted to share that with you tonight. And I hope that you are doing well and that 2024 is being everything you wanted and desired as much as you can control, right? Because there's a lot out of our control. We're season four. We are wonderfully and well met. Thank you for joining me tonight. This has been Late Night with White. And once again, I'm your host, C.D. White. Please check us out on all of your favorite podcast apps. Facebook, the email is Late Night with White. Thank you and have a good night.